Welcome to Bill Bronchick's Real Estate Investing Podcast. Mr. Bronchick is an attorney, best-selling author, and a real estate investor with 25 years' experience. For more information and free articles and videos, visit his website at www.legalwiz.com. Hi, I'm attorney Bill Bronchick, and in this lesson, you're going to learn really great techniques for acquiring property using creative real estate financing. Now, first let me define what I mean by creative real estate financing. That means not putting 20% or more down, going to a bank, begging for a loan, and signing personally on the bottom line because you can only do that so many times and you'll run out of cash, you'll run out of the ability to get credit from a bank, and it's putting yourself personally on the hook, which can be risky depending on where you are in your local real estate market. Now, we're at a time now where real estate prices are generally in most markets going on the way up. Not going down, but on the way up. And on the way up, we want to buy as wide as we can. Leverage. Get as much real estate as we can get our hands on with as little money down on each one and leverage so that everything grows uh, proportionally, uh, exponentially, rather than just putting all cash down on one property. And, you know, there's no real risk to that because there's no payments that you could be held liable for. And, it, you know, you're not going to get stuck necessarily in a situation where you have negative cash flow. But generally speaking, if you can buy properties, at least break even or have a little bit of reserve of cash flow or you have some other reserve of money of cash or cash flow or a line of credit or a partner who can feed uh, a property when it goes negative, then you want to buy as much as you can with as little money down as possible. Now before we get into the techniques, I want to remind you that buying real estate with little or no money down is not difficult. In fact, it's quite easy as I'm going to show you. But if you buy properties that don't make sense in the wrong neighborhoods at the wrong time of the market, that really don't make financial sense, that are negative cash flow or could become negative, you're going to become a motivated seller pretty quickly. And especially if you do it the way uh, most people do it, where they go to a bank and borrow money and sign personally, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble if things go bad. So what I want to show you how to do is buy properties with little or no money down, little or no risk, not uh, personally liable for the obligations, and that makes sense, it will cash flow and do very well for you. And of course, the less cash you put down, the more return you make on your money. Simple mathematical formula, let's look at that. Your cash on cash or annual cash on cash return is your annual cash flow divided by the dollars invested. So if you buy a property and you put all cash down, then your denominator is going to be very, very large and then your, your return on money will be very, very low. But if you leverage and you can borrow at reasonable rates, whether it be from a third party or from a seller in a seller carry situation, where you have X dollars of annual cash flow and you have very little invested, if you have not invested, your return is infinite, but if you have very little invested, then you could see in terms of a fraction, the number gets much larger. So we want to put down as little as possible and get as much annual cash flow in relation to that to get the most out of our money annually, particularly 
if you're going to do investments like I'm about to describe inside of a retirement vehicle like an IRA or 401k, which is a very powerful way to do it, by the way, especially if I'm a Roth IRA where there's like, you know, virtually no tax involved. So if you can get high rates of return, 20, 30, 40% on your money, you're doing really, really well in your retirement plan. So let's go over some of the techniques that we're going to cover. Number one is a sandwich lease option, very powerful technique. Number two, the traditional, what we call the traditional owner carry. And number three, what we call a subject to purchase. Sometimes I'll just refer to it as a sub two. So for short, so we can have as much room as we can on the drawing board, so to speak. Okay, so these are the three techniques we're going to use. Now I have uh, dozens of more techniques and variations. I'm just going to give you the flavor of how you put these techniques. I'm going to give you examples and numbers so that you can get an idea of, of when you come across a transaction that you can plug in one of these transactional uh, uh, models to acquire a property with little or no money down and of course little or no risk to you. Alright, so we'll start with the lease option. The sandwich lease option. Now, before we go into a sandwich lease option, just want to make sure you understand what a lease option is. A lease option is a rental agreement with or combined with or in conjunction with an option to purchase. Or in the case of your the landlord seller, an option to sell. Now, uh, the tenant slash buyer has an option, uh, usually fixed up front, an agreed upon price and terms to buy the property over a specified period period, usually running concurrently with a lease, so a three-year lease with a three-year option to buy, although those can be uh, different terms, generally that's the way they run. A sandwich lease option would be a scenario where you don't own the property. You're going to lease it yourself with an option to buy. So let's say we have a party, we call them A, which is the owner of the property, and you are B. So you can lease that property with an option to purchase at an agreed upon price. And you sign paperwork that says you're going to lease it for a monthly amount and then you have a certain term, two, three, four, five years, and an option to purchase. By the way, how long of a period would you want to get on this lease with option? Well, if they are favorable terms as long as possible, but not necessarily you know, a 20 year lease with option because that puts you on the hook for 20 years, you might as well get a mortgage. What I suggest you do is maybe get a three to five year lease option and then a right to renew that term for another three, five or more years, one or more times. That way if things don't go the way you want, well you're only on the hook for three to five years which is much better than say a 30 year mortgage which you'd be obligated to if you bought the property traditional means. So you have a lease and option agreement with the owner. And now this is what's known as a master lease option agreement. It's a master in that you're not going to live there and I don't recommend that you tell the seller, the owner of the property, that you're going to live there and try to sneak something on the side. I just don't think that's an honest way to do business. You want to be straight up. You want to tell the seller what your business model is, how you make your profit, and and if they have a problem with you making a profit, then, well, they're probably a communist or something or a socialist. But seriously, 
if you tell them up front, this is my model, this is my business, I'm gonna lease it, I'm not gonna live there. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sublet the property to party C and I'm gonna give them a lease plus option to buy from me. And that lease will be at a higher monthly rent at a higher price than I buy from you. So when my tenant is ready to buy from me, I'll exercise my option, buy it from you, and sell it to my subtenant, and I'll make a spread on the price when I do so. In the meantime, I'm going to rent it to them at a higher price than I rent it from you. And that's exactly what you're doing. There's no reason not to be totally upfront and honest with party A. And if you're wondering, well, what if they say I could do this on my own, I don't need you, it never happens. Most people don't know how to do this on their own. They need you to do it. They're not experienced enough or they're not confident enough or they don't want to deal with the problem. They want you to take care of the problem. So, but you, by you having the knowledge of how to do this, you make money, okay? So don't worry about A, you know, catching on as to what to do with C. So let's put some numbers to this. Let's say you come across A and A, now typically A would be someone who has a mortgage on the property. So let's, I'm going to use round numbers. I know people are watching from different parts of the country where property values have different prices, and I know that it, it might be lot, uh, low or high depending on where you live, but I'm using round numbers so you follow the math. So let's say this property has an ARV of $100,000. And let's say the seller owes eighty five. And his principal interest taxes and insurance is PITI monthly payment. And this will change depending on where you are in the country because of taxes and so forth, but just follow the example. Let's just say it's $800 per month. Now, if the market rent for this property is higher than that, and obviously the ARV is higher than the balance owed, because if the seller here A tried to sell the property. Typical scenario is A moves out of town, tries to do a remote closing, buyer didn't close, puts it for sale again, gets it under contract, buyer couldn't close for whatever reason, and now the property's vacant for three, four, five, or six months and they're making payments on that property plus whatever other property in another state that they've moved into and, and it's just killing them. They can't make this payment anymore. And in reality, if they sold this property even for a hundred, uh, and if they wanted to move it quickly, even less, and pay the broker fee and all that, and pay off the loan, they're not really walking away from closing with a lot of money here. So what their main problem is, is this monthly $800 is killing them, and eventually they want to get rid of that $85,000 mortgage. So if you leased it from them for, 80, for $800 a month, so let's say the lease is $800, and the option is at $85, and let's say you got that for five years. Okay, now you can now sell it to the tenant at the market price. Now, a hundred is what it's worth now, but if you gave the tenant, let's say, a two to three year option, you don't want to give them five. You want to leave yourself room unless, in, in case that this tenant buyer doesn't ultimately buy, you could sell it to somebody else and still have time under the remaining remainder of the five years. So let's say you gave a two to three year option to your tenant to buy from you and what's going to happen in the future is if this market is going up let's say five percent a year in two years it's worth 110 and if you give them three years and gave them a price of 110 
So give them the option to buy from you at 110 and gave them a lease at market rent, and let's say market rent was $1,200. Well, in the meantime, you're making $1,200 minus $800, so you're making $400 a month, and then ultimately you're going to sell it to the tenant for $110 and buy it for $85, which is another $25,000 equity spread. It's a pretty nice deal here. Especially on a house you really don't own, you don't have a lot of risk, you're not going to give the seller any substantial money up front, maybe first, last, and security, or first and security, uh, and then just start making the payments on the house, and then have someone move into it and rent it from you, and you're going to pocket the spread. You have very little risk, you're, you're liable on a lease, and by the way, I wouldn't sign personally. I would use maybe a special purpose LLC just for this deal in case the deal goes bad and you don't want to be held personally liable. It could be a very, very profitable, low-risk scenario. And by the way, the, this is a sandwich. Could be, could be be your IRA in the middle and do this whole thing without potentially paying any tax, especially if it was a Roth IRA. Absolutely. Very, very good deal, especially in a market where things are headed up. Now, if things aren't headed up, then you're not going to get 110 for the property. You could just sell it at market at 100, and as long as it appraises in the future for that, instead of getting 25 on the back end, maybe you only get 15, which is still pretty profitable. Now, one more thing. I mentioned you don't give much money, if anything, to the seller up front, maybe first and last or first and security. The tenant buyer, C, is going to put up some option or earnest money for the privilege. And that's going to be, in this case, you know, two to three percent of the purchase price. So let's say that's um, three grand. Now, that three grand, if they buy, gets knocked off of the difference between the 110 and the 85. The 25 at the back end becomes 22 at the back end. And if you really wanted to induce this buyer here, potential buyer, tenant, potential buyer here to buy the property from you. First of all, you, you should get involved, introduce them to a mortgage broker, fix whatever situation they have with their credit or whatever they need to get a loan. If you gave them a, a monthly um, uh, incentive to pay on time, let's say for every $1,200 payment that they made, you give them $300 um, as additional option money or option consideration. So after two years that would be um, 24 times three, 300 which would be I believe about, you know, I'll say roughly rounded off seven additional grand. So the difference between 110 and 85, 25 is subtract three and subtract another seven. Um, just as an inducement to get this buyer to A, pay on time because he only gets a uh, uh, an additional option consideration credit for the months he pays on time, but to induce him to, to really build some equity so he can go out and get a loan and then ultimately cash you out and then you exercise your option from A and back to back sell it to C. Very profitable scenario. And again, um, the numbers have to work here. What you'll find here is that on high-end properties, you know, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollar property, may not work that well because the payment here 
you know, the PITI has to be lower than market rent. And when you get into very expensive properties, it doesn't work as well. So if you're in a market where your typical property, what I've described as a 300,000, it'll probably work. But if you're uh, in a situation where you're dealing with a $700,000 property where the average property is three, it's probably not gonna work very well. There are other strategies we can employ to do that, which I'll tell you about coming up in just a moment. Okay, let's move on to our second creative financing strategy, which is the owner carry or seller carry. Now, what we're looking for is a seller who owns a property free and clear, who is willing to accept most of the purchase price in the form of financing. That is, you give a small amount or very little down, and the seller takes a note as most of the purchase price and that note is collateralized or secured by a mortgage or deed of trust against the property so you would get title to the property the seller would get some money a note and then collateral as a lien against the property ownership would be in your name or in name of a, a trust or an LLC that you set up and the seller would have a lien against the property if you don't pay on the note they could foreclose it under state law now, typically, when I make an offer to a seller who has a free and clear property, and by the way, you might be wondering, you know, who has a free and clear property these days? Everybody's mortgaged up to their eyeballs, and the reality is 31% of America is free and clear. Nearly a third of properties don't have mortgages against them. By the way, can you buy a list of properties that are free and clear from public record sources that you can mail to and propose an offer? Absolutely. So if you come across a seller who's free and clear, typically I like to make... Uh, two offers on such a property and one is going to be a lowball cash offer and the other one is going to be a terms offer. Now typically the cash offer depending on what work the property needs but typically is going to be in the range of 65 to 70 percent of ARV minus repairs that takes to get it in that condition. So that's going to be a fairly low offer. The terms offer, what I like to do is offer someone um, in the realm of 80 to 90% of ARV, assuming it doesn't need any you know, substantial work. I mean, if a little bit of carpet and paint is one thing, but if it needs any substantial work, we're going to subtract that off there. And I offer them what I call the 555 plan. I got that from presidential candidate Herman Cain. I think he was 999. So I got that 555. Now, by the way, this is between you and me, 555. You don't say this to the seller, 555. But what you offer is 5% down, or a number that is reasonably close to 5% down, no more than 5% interest, and no less than a five-year balloon. A balloon is a premature payoff of the loan. So. For example, we usually amortize this note over 30 years. We could have a five-year balloon to say after five years, whatever is remaining on the balance would be due at that point. Now, when you buy, you don't want to have any balloon. But if the seller says, well, you know, I, I want a balloon, and they want a two-year balloon, then you can negotiate and say, no, I want a 10-year balloon, and then arrive at no less than five, uh, preferably seven. Anything less than a five-year balloon is a little too risky for you because then you have to sell or refinance the property uh, it, when that balloon comes up. 5% interest, again, I wouldn't start at 5%, I'd offer less. And I don't say 5% down to the seller. If it's a $200,000 property, 
10 gram is obviously 5%, but that's too obvious because they can figure that out in their head. What I would say is $9,200 or $11,300, some, some number that they can't do the math easily in their head and they see, oh, I'm getting X amount of cash. Now, the reason I make two offers is, first of all, psychologically, if you offer just A terms offer, the answer could be yes or no. If you offer A or B, it doesn't occur to a lot of people that there's a C option, which is none of the above. So they're going A or B, A or B, A or B. And in the order of things, offer this one first, this one second. If you start with the low ball cash, you might really tick them off because it's so low that they just don't want to deal with you. In terms of a terms offer, uh, 80 to 90% of ARV um, so if they're asking already a fairly reasonable price and you could say, hey, listen, I'll give you what you're asking if you give me my terms, but if I have to pay cash, it's going to be a lower number. That's a good negotiating strategy. But I like to offer A and B. And typically, if I really want this one, the terms offer, I'm going to make this one sting a little more. Maybe may offer them 60, 62%. So it stings so much that they go back to this offer and it seems better by comparison. Okay? But again, remember, offer terms first because it's a higher price. Even though it's not the terms they're looking for, they're not going to be insulted as if you offer the cash lowball and they see that number and they immediately you know, blow up at you. So you've got to be careful about that. And at these numbers, you've got to make sure that you have a back-end strategy. So if you're going to rent the property or you could sell it on a lease with option like we talked about earlier instead of a sandwich, just the back-end part of it. But make sure you have enough room there where you have a little bit of equity, you have a, um, a small down, that you have a, um, preferably no balloon, but at least uh, five years to work with, a fixed rate payment of no more than 5%. And at today's rents and prices in the right price range, uh, this should work sufficiently fine for you, even though you're paying 80 to 90% of the price, you're dealing with very little down, a reasonable interest rate, and preferably no balloon or long enough uh, balloon period that it's not going to uh, be a problem for you. And again, in terms of negotiating, don't say 555, just offer numbers that say X and then negotiate from there, but you don't want to do much more than 5% down, 5% interest, and certainly no less than a five-year balloon. Now, again, on a back-end strategy, you can rent this property out, you could sell it on a lease option. You, if it's in an appreciating market, you can always refi after five years or sell the property or sell the property on a lease with option and be out of it in five years. However you do it, this is a good strategy, what I call the 555. Now, sometimes you're going to come across a seller who just wants more down. Now, there's two reasons why a seller would want more down. If a seller says, look, I don't trust you with only 5% down, I have a bad experience or I know someone who had a bad experience and I want more than 5% down on the purchase price <clears throat> and mainly because I just don't trust you with such a small amount down on my house. If that's the issue, that you probably should go back to the drawing board in terms of creating rapport and trust with the seller. If they're not trusting you, if they're saying, I don't trust you, I want more down, then you've done something wrong with building the rapport with the seller. Okay? If he had a bad experience, then you have to get him over that experience or assure him why this is such a, uh, a reasonable deal. And one of the ways I do that is sort of like when you cross-examine a witness on the, on the stand at a trial. 
uh, a direct examination, if it's your witness, you ask very open-ended questions. But on cross, you're trying to lead them down a path by asking them very specific yes or no questions. So they can't kind of, you know, get wiggle room or, and explain things. Uh, you want to be able to walk them down to a conclusion. And you're doing the same thing with a seller. So you say, Mr. Seller, do you think this house would make, and this is before you've made the terms offer, do you think um, this would make a good um, income property? Oh, yes. Do you think this would make enough income that it would support a mortgage? Oh, absolutely. You think if I went to a bank and tried to borrow money against it, that they have no problem with this as collateral? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And do you think that, you know, with mortgage payment and rent payment that I could make positive cash flow? Oh, absolutely. So you think the property could support a mortgage of 80-90% of the property? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then at that point, if you introduce, hey, why don't you be the bank? He can't undo what he's already said. You know, he already agreed this would be good collateral, that it would support the mortgage and all that. It's hard for him to come back and argue that it's not sufficient collateral and he wants something else in terms of more down. Okay? So that, that, that's a good way to do it. And typically, you don't want to negotiate this over the phone either. If you call up a seller and you start talking and you say, will you, will you carry the uh, terms, will you carry a note? Most times the answer is no. You, you can't do it over the phone, first of all. You have to see the property, meet with them, create rapport, and introduce the concept in a back-ended way. So for example, if you said to a seller, will you carry terms? The answer is usually no. But if you say, Mr. Seller, after you've had this conversation about collateral and all that, Mr. Seller, would you be interested in a scenario where I can give you the highest possible price that would have the best possible tax benefit for you and provide you with a, a residual cash flow stream? Would you be interested in hearing an offer that meets all this criteria? And if he says yes, tell me more, now you've got his ear. But if you just go right out with the terms offer, typically it's not going to work very well. So there's a way to negotiate it and there's a way to introduce it in terms of benefits. And one of the benefits I mentioned is a tax benefit. So if he bought it for 50000 and he's selling it now for 200000 there's a $150,000 capital gain there that's due in the year of sale. If you give him $10,000 down and a $190,000 note, well, he, he pays the gain on the $10,000, but the $190,000 note, he's receiving principal and interest payments, and only the principal he receives that year would be subject to the capital gains. We're spreading the capital gain liability over the life and term of the loan. That's another reason why if he says, I want a five-year balloon, you explain to him, listen, after five years, in year five, you're going to have to pay all the capital gains on that note. So it might not be very good for you. So understand the benefits to the seller and get into his shoes and be able to explain it in a way that benefits him. If you just start out with, will you carry it? The answer is generally no. You have to build up to that moment. And don't do it over the phone. Don't talk terms and numbers over the phone. Just get the basic information about the property, the situation that, you know, that he that he has, that he's in, and why he needs to sell it, and then you, you meet with the seller, you create rapport, you, you present the offer in a way that shows him the benefits to him. Now I'd like to discuss with you the third creative real estate financing strategy for acquiring properties, and that is buying subject to an existing mortgage. What do we mean by buying subject to an existing mortgage? Well, if you've got a property, hey, this is my little house, and you've got uh, a person 
who owns that house, that means the deed is in their name, and then there's a bank, and the borrower has signed a note to the bank, which is the <coughs> debt instrument, that's the IOU, says that, that how much they owe and how they're going to pay it, and, <coughs> and then the property um, has a lien against it, which the bank has, called a security instrument, which is in some states a mortgage, in some states a deed of trust, but what it basically is, is the lien against the property. So the deed is titled in the borrower's name, he signs a note to the lender, and then the lender has a security instrument against the property as a lien. If the payments are not made on the note, then the lender can foreclose on the security instrument and gain ownership of the property that they gave, uh, that the borrower gave as collateral for the obligation on the note. Now, to buy subject two would mean that the deed to the property is transferred to you, and I say you, you know, in quotes, because that could be a, a trust or an LLC that you set up. Now the deed ownership is in your name, no longer this guy's name, but did you sign the note to the bank? No, you did not. The former owner did. So he's liable on the note, you're not. Now, does the bank still have a security instrument, a lien against the property? Yes, they do, because you took the property subject to that security instrument, subject to that mortgage lien. So when we say taking subject to, you're taking ownership subject to the existing lien. You're not personally liable for the note because you didn't sign it, but if you don't make payments on that note, then the bank has the uh, authority to commence foreclosure proceedings to get the property back as collateral for the note that was signed. Now, one of the great things about this is, if you take over the existing property subject to the existing mortgage lien, number one, you don't qualify for it. You don't ask for permission to assume liability. That's an assumption. That's different. We're just going to take the property subject to the existing lien and make the payments just like the borrower was making them. Now, some of the benefits are you don't have to qualify for the loan. It's not your personal obligation if things go bad, such as a non-payment won't affect your credit, it won't result in a judgment or liability against you for the foreclosure deficiency. If this person lived there as their primary residence, that's going to be a lower interest rate than you could get if you went to a bank and said, I want to borrow money as a, an investment property. Plus, if this was a 30-year mortgage, and let's say the borrower has already paid that down six or seven years, that means you only have 23, 24 years left on the mortgage. You're actually starting to pay down principal. So there's lots of benefits to you. It won't appear in your credit report, and it's not your personal liability. But if you don't pay it, the lender could foreclose it, and then the liability would be against the borrower for any deficiency or any you know, credit, uh, negative credit implications of the non-payment of the note. Now, when you take ownership this way, you know, what are the, what's the downside of it? Well, the downside is, is that this mortgage this security instrument or deed of trust inevitably is going to have a clause that says if property is transferred, if ownership is transferred in any way, shape, or form, lender has the option to accelerate the balance of the note and then commence foreclosure proceedings against the property. Now, note that it's sometimes referred to as a due on sale, but it's not really accurate. It's not due on sale. It's due on sale at the option of the lender. So the lender could say, okay, I'll just take the payments and say nothing. Or they could say, no, we don't want to take the payment. We're going to foreclose the property. We're going to accelerate the balance and make you pay it off within 30 days. 
Now, in most cases, they don't do that. And the reason is, is because if the interest rate on this note, let's say, was, was, uh, was 5%, if the interest rate, let's say, on that note was 5%, and market interest rates were 4%, would it make sense for the lender to call in that note? Obviously not, because they would lose money. But if the interest rate on this loan was 5% and market rates were 10%, would it make sense for them to call in the loan and make you get a new loan with them at 10%? Absolutely. Okay. Now, if this is an adjustable rate note, then the lender certainly won't care because if the market rates go up, so does the rate on the note and they're protected. So the main reason they put that clause in there is to give them the option, not automatic, to give them the option to accelerate the balance of the loan if market rates are substantially higher than the rate on the note. Okay. Now, in a lot of scenarios, a seller is not just going to deed you over the property and be still liable for the note, which he would be, unless he's thinking of walking away or is already in default. Let's say on this note, he was four payments in arrears. Well, now, if it gets foreclosed, this seller is toast in terms of his credit, and he might end up with a deficiency judgment against him if he's in a state that allows it, where the amount of the foreclosure is not enough to pay the note, which is very often the case. So in a situation like this, the seller is smart to hand it over to you because if you make up those four payments and then continue to make them, you're improving the seller's credit and you're keeping their credit intact, okay, as opposed to a foreclosure. Now the lender in that case, you just took it out of default and made it current. The odds of them calling that note due after you transfer ownership are really, really slim. I mean, there's exceptions to that. It's possible, just not very likely. And you know, given the two options of you putting 20% or more down, signing personally on the note with all the obligation and risk, or giving the seller a little walking money, making up a few payments, and then taking the property subject to the existing loan, which is a very good interest rate on there, better than you could ever get from a bank as an investor, with the potential risk that the lender can call it due, which one would you take? Obviously, most people would take the option of taking the chance especially if it's a short-term scenario. So let's say you took the property subject to the loan, and then on the back end, you did a lease with option for, let's say, two to three years. So in two to three years, that tenant is gonna buy the property, you'll pay off that underlying loan and it'll all be done. What are the odds the lender is gonna call the loan due within two to three years, particularly if you cured it out of foreclosure, market rates didn't go up substantially, and there was no incentive for them to call it in, not very likely. And the reality is most lenders don't even realize that this is being done because they're not checking the deed transfers down at the county. They don't have spies down there checking it. Um, and they're certainly not going to notice a different name on the check that gets mailed in for the payment. Uh, the way they find out is when you transfer ownership of the property from this guy to you, you have to change the insurance policy to name the new owner. And they'll typically get a copy of that, and that's when the red flag may go up. But again, my experience has been that 99 times out of 100, they just really could care less. As long as they're getting paid, they're perfectly happy. Particularly if we're talking about a property with an ARV of 200K, and then what's owed is, let's say, 190K. There's not a lot of equity there for the bank to want to foreclose. But if the interest rate was, let's say, 3.75%, 
you would have a really low payment that you could rent or lease option this property out for a substantial cash flow for literally giving the seller a couple of grand walking money and making up a few back payments. Really, really not a big risk for you because if the lender calls it due, you have a couple of options. One, you could sell the property. Two, you could refi the property. Three, you could give it back to the seller, just deed it back to him and that cures the, the, you know, the, the default because now the property's back in his name. Uh, and if you haven't put up a lot of money and you make cash flow in the meantime, you know, that, that, that's probably okay with you anyway. Um, but this is a, this is a, a, a very, very uh, risk-reward and highly in favor of reward and low in favor of risk in terms of a transaction for you. If you could find properties like this, and typically you're looking for people who advertise for sale or rent, people who are a couple of payments behind or maybe facing a foreclosure, um, you know, people who are tired landlords, definitely a good option. And in terms of coming across, you know, earlier we mentioned a guy who had a property worth 100 where he owed 85, and I suggested a sandwich lease option and then sublease option. Well, you could certainly offer this as a solution as well. Now, it, it's a little delicate because this is sort of going for, for lack of a better expression, going for the gusto. Uh, asking a seller to just deed you over the property, and if you don't make the payments, he's screwed blue tattooed, so to speak. He's out of luck because he doesn't own the property and he's still liable for the loan. That might be too hard for a seller to swallow, especially if he's current on his payments. Whereas the lease option is a little softer, it's a little less threatening, he doesn't need a lawyer to get involved, you know, it's a lease and it sounds a little less threatening to him because the title remains in his name. Whereas the, the subject two, you're taking the full ownership of the property and leaving him, you know, potentially hanging in the wind if, he, if you don't pay the mortgage because he's still liable for the note and it will affect his credit. So you're going to have to use a judgment call when you approach a seller uh, of whether to do a subject to or whether to do a sandwich lease option. I'd say if the seller is behind in payments and he doesn't have a lot of equity like in this scenario, I would go for the subject too because I don't think he's going to object. Because if, if he's giving you language like, if you don't solve my problem, I'm just going to walk away and let it go back to the bank, then he doesn't really care about his credit so much. His credit is already dinged from the late payments. But if he's current on the payments and just had bad luck with buyers and just can't afford the monthly payment but is credit conscious and otherwise you know in good financial uh, situation probably go for the lease option scenario that's probably going to work better in terms of a negotiation couple of tips here uh, one in terms of payments don't make the payment directly to the seller because if you make the payment to the seller and trust him to make it to the bank he could pocket the money and not pay it so what I suggest is either you make the payment directly or really simple is most banks have online setups now where you can go to Wells Fargo or Bank of America, go online, and then where it says automatic payment, you can just put a routing number and a bank account number. Just put your account in there instead of his account, and the payment goes directly from your company's bank account to the mortgage company. And what's nice about that is if the seller is suspicious, like how do I know you're going to make my payment, when you suggest that, look, you have a login, I have a login, you'll get an email, I'll get an email if it gets paid or it doesn't get paid. And that way there's a sort of accountability system there. Otherwise, if you make the payments directly to his lender, there's really not that same accountability uh, for him. And plus, it's just a lot easier to do it that way. The second thing is, is I suggest you get a power of attorney, a POA. And this is not a full POA. This is what's known as a, a special or limited POA that says, that you have the right to deal with his property and his loan. That way, if 
they change servicers or there's an error in payment, you could call up his lender and negotiate or deal with the problem. Otherwise, if you're not the borrower, they're not going to talk to you without permission from him. That's one I've learned the hard way, unfortunately. Make sure you change the insurance on the property. And in terms of taking title, there's a couple of ways to do it. You can have the seller deed it over to your LLC or corporation, or you can put it in what's called a land trust. Now a land trust is a trust that's created for the property that will take title to the property and when you change the insurance and the seller, uh, uh, the lender rather, gets a copy of that insurance change, they see a trust, they might assume, wrongly, that the seller's done some estate planning and it's a living trust. Now, as a matter of experience, some lenders, if you don't have the seller on there as an additional insured, they may bounce it back because their computer requires not only insurance, proof of insurance on the property, but proof that the borrower is somewhere on that policy. You don't want to make them the primary insured because then the check has to be signed by him if there's any loss. You don't want that. Uh, otherwise, if it's payable to him, you can use that power of attorney to execute his name for any losses on the property. But simple, just change the insurance to you or a trust and then make this, the former owner borrower the additional insured for liability purposes, which is fine, which may satisfy the lender uh, who gets the copy of the change of insurance. Okay. Now, when you go down to the county, you're going to record a deed to the property from the seller to you. Make sure, again, you change that insurance to make it current, you set up a, an automatic payment plan, and you get a limited power of attorney from the seller, I would recommend that you go through a title company or attorney to close this transaction. Don't do it with a deed across a kitchen table. I would recommend you do a full closing, do a title search and make sure there's no other liens against the property you're not aware of, get a title policy, which they'll, they'll do. You know, Not every title company will do it, but most will do it and they'll just say, we don't cover that lien that's already on the property. Okay, So that, that, that's a scenario that could work very well for you for a variety of scenarios. To buy subject to to rent, buy subject to and sell on a lease with option, buy subject to fix it up and sell it, pay off the loan. Certainly for a short term strategy, there's very little risk. If interest rates went up in the future, five or 10 years from now, um, you went up to 10 or 11 or 12 percent, and the lender wanted to push the issue, you probably have enough equity at that point to sell it or refinance it. Um, you could go to the lender and ask them to waive it, waive the due on sale. You could assume the loan. You can negotiate uh, a waiver and pay the money and maybe they'll jack the interest rate a little bit on you on the remaining balance. There's a lot of different options, you know. So you're not, you're not going to jail <laughs> if the lender calls up and says, hey, you took over that property. It's just a contractual right that the lender has under the lien uh, to call the loan due and in most cases they really don't care. So. You could uh, mail them the payment, and then 99 times out of 100, guess what? They're going to take the payment. So risk of them calling it due, it exists. Big one, probably not, unless interest rates in the market went up substantially, and I mean 4 to 5% above what the rate was on the underlying loan. So definitely a great short-term strategy. Could be a long-term strategy as well, depending on what you're planning on doing with the property on the back end. Hey, look, if you could do it for four or five years and then sell the property and catch the cash flow and the appreciation, great strategy. These are all good strategies and appropriate for certain circumstances. Not every circumstance, but they are available. So we've to, to review, we've gone over the sandwich lease option, uh, buy it on a master lease with option, sell it on a master lease with option. Second one was an owner carry 
where you get the seller to take a small down and then negotiate that 555 for the terms of it. And then the third one is when you come across a seller who's got you know very little equity and uh, a really good interest rate on the underlying loan, just take the property subject to. Even if it's a few payments behind, at closing you can make up those back payments, give the seller a little walking money, and then just take over ownership subject to the existing lien, which gives you control of the property with a low payment that you can rent out for positive cash flow or back end it on a lease option and just make a nice little tidy profit. I hope you've enjoyed these strategies. I hope that you'll, more importantly, that you'll put these into action. If you have any follow-up questions, just drop me an email, bill at bronchick.com. Thank you for listening to Bill Bronchick's Real Estate Investing Podcast. For more information and free articles and videos, visit his website at www.legalwiz.com.